Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Those of you who have gone mountain climbing, you know how important your equipment is as you're hanging to the face of a cliff. And it's only a harness, a rope, a few clips that are keeping you from dying. It's all you have. That's it. Just that. You know in that moment how important the integrity of your equipment is. 2006, a legendary mountain climber, Todd Skinner, his harness broke and he fell and died. For climbing a mountain, you depend on your equipment. You need it to work. His life depended on his equipment. Your life depends on that equipment when you are climbing. Now, many of you will never climb a mountain because, like me, it terrifies you. Why would you do that? Others of you will. But regardless, the same holds true when you think about something that all of you have to do. Every last one of you. No one gets out of it. And that is all of us have to enter into the afterlife. Everyone. You don't expect you're going to live in this same body forever, do you? No. You have to experience entering into an afterlife. There's no way around that. And when you do, everything depends on your equipment working. It's like you're hanging on the edge of a mountain of eternity. And if you fall downward, there's eternal sorrow. If you rise upward, if you survive and you get to the top, eternal joy. Most human beings throughout the history of the entire world, all recorded history, have believed that there is an afterlife and that it can either be a happy one or a not happy one. So there is a risk that you take when you enter into the afterlife and there is no way around it and everything depends upon the rope you're holding on. Will it hold or will it break? What are you holding on to? What are you trusting in right now? If you were to leave this world and your physical body behind you today, then what is your equipment? What is your rope? What are the clips? What is your harness? What holds you? What keeps you alive? What preserves you into a happy afterlife as opposed to an unhappy afterlife? It's these kinds of questions that the Apostle Paul is dealing directly with today. You saw last week that he began dealing with a group of false teachers known as Judaizers who were holding on to circumcision and the keeping of the externals of the Mosaic law. They were holding on to their external Jewishness as they entered into an afterlife. And they wanted the Philippian Christians to get circumcised and do the same thing. Put their confidence in the flesh. And Paul is begging them and begging you not to do that. And he is saying that rope will not hold. And he's offering you a different hope. A different rope. So let's see that as we continue here. Through this letter. Which we'll continue also next week with some more of. But. He had just said, we glory in Christ Jesus and we, Christians, put no confidence in the flesh. And then beginning in verse 4 of chapter 3, he says this. Though I myself have reason 
for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, whatever I trusted in, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Though there are a lot of details in our text, here's the whole point. Paul changed out his equipment for the climb. And you have to do the same thing. That's the whole point of this passage, last week, this week, next week. That's it. He had one sort of rope. He realized it would break. He got a different kind of rope. And he's urging the Philippians and you to do the same thing in light of the afterlife. His former equipment that he trusted, he counted it as gain. He trusted it would benefit him going into the afterlife was his external Jewishness. You see that? Circumcision on the eighth day. Israelite, a Benjaminite, he was authentically Jewish, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, so when the Judaizers came to the Philippians and said, if you become very Jewish, then that's your hope going into the afterlife that Yahweh will accept you. And Paul is saying, I disagree with that, but it's not because I lacked any of the credentials. In fact, he says, I myself once trusted in all the same things. But when Christ met him on the road to Damascus, he says, all of that I count as lost for the sake of Christ or on account of Christ. When Christ interrupted Paul's life, formerly Saul, interrupts his life, makes him Paul, he becomes a Christian. Then he says at that point, everything he was counting a benefit, everything he was holding on to, he realized just the opposite. It was weighing him down to hell. It was not going to save him. It was going to condemn him forever. And he regarded it as loss. He traded it out, and in its stead was what? The rope of Christ, and nothing else but Christ himself. And our aim this morning is to convince you to do the same. And I'm not satisfied at the end of this message if that's not the point that's gotten across to you. Above everything else, many of you know Christ. Many of you have that equipment. You are ready to face an afterlife, and some of you are not. It's always that way in the crowd, always. The point of this message is to convince you that if you're holding on to anything at all, it doesn't have to be Jewish, it can be Christian, it can be any religious hope that you have. If that's the rope you're going into eternity with, it will snap. And today is the day of salvation where Paul, God through Paul, through me, is appealing to you to get rid of it, which is hard, but get rid of it and in its place, Take Christ and only Christ instead. Christ alone. So to that end, we're going to see two things in this text. First, we're going to see Paul's old equipment, if you will. What he calls gain in his former life. What he thought a benefit. Everything he was clinging to before. So gain, according to verse 7. Whatever I considered gain. We're going to look at that first. 
But verse 7 says, I counted it as loss. We're going to look secondly at how he came to count it all as loss and took different equipment and clung to Christ instead of his Jewishness. So let's just look at those two things, beginning with what was Paul holding on to as he prepared himself for eternity? What was the equipment he got rid of? What is it that he considers gain? In verse 3, Paul said that at present, he'd gotten rid of this hope. He puts no boasting in the flesh, no confidence in the flesh, clinging to Christ. But then here, right at the beginning of verse 4, he starts with a though. Though. Meaning, while presently he's trusting in Christ, he got rid of everything else he was hoping in. It wasn't easy. Any of you who are in Christ know this to be true. That moment when you give up whatever you're hoping in for salvation, for the goodness, the meaningfulness of your life, and you trade that all away to grab onto Christ, that hurts. And it's not an easy thing. It's one of the hardest things. It's free. You don't have to even do anything but the internal struggle you experience. Paul says, however, even though now I'm trusting Christ, I want you to know it wasn't always that way. Though... He says, if the Judaizers have a reason for confidence in the flesh, look, I was one of them. This is kind of like Aesop's fable, the fox and the grape, the sour grapes, if you've ever heard of that, where there is a fox who comes along and he sees grapes growing on a vine just beyond his reach. And so the fox says to himself, I bet those are sour, disgusting grapes. Not because he has a reason to think that, but because he can't get them. And it makes him feel better to think them of less worth. That is not what Paul's doing here. The Judaizers can't say, well, Paul discredits all of these Jewish markers, circumcision and keeping the Mosaic law and dietary restrictions simply because he was never able to keep them in the first place. Maybe he was a Gentile who never did those things or he was a Jew who just couldn't keep up with the rules and regulations. And Paul is saying, not true. He had the grapes in his arms. Paul was Jewish. Paul was as he's going to argue, about as Jewish as you can get. So if anyone could be counted righteous by all of these Jewish markings, all religiosity, it was Paul. That's what he's trying to say here. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else, and here he's thinking of the Judaizers who've come in as Jews or Perhaps Gentiles become Jews, but probably as Jews, and they're trying to convince the Philippian Christians, you need to get circumcised, you need to keep the law, don't eat these certain foods, keep the Mosaic law, keep the restrictions, be a good Gentile Jew. And that's the only way to be saved. Cling on to that, and you'll survive the climb. And Paul is saying, if those Judaizers, or any of you who submit to their teaching, think that by your Jewishness, you will be qualified for heaven, well, then I should be qualified for heaven. In fact, he says, me more so, as he's going to argue. Now, we're going to consider this list that Paul gives of his zealous Jewishness. And you could be tempted to think as we do this, whew, doesn't apply to me because I'm not tempted to be Jewish. But notice the way he describes it here in verse 4. Reason for 
confidence in the flesh. That means that what he's going to describe in one particular culture at one particular time in God's salvific history also has application to anyone trying to be right with God by putting their trust, their confidence, holding on to things that are ultimately based in the flesh, meaning not Christ. The flesh is you. You're the flesh, okay? So anything that depends upon you, your performance, your work, your religiosity, your attendance at churches and mass, name it, whatever you want to name it, it is a confidence in the flesh. And every person in the world who has a mind to think before you know Christ, you have confidence in the flesh. Even if you give the afterlife just a little bit of thought, you're depending that your good will outweigh your bad. You're depending on your parents' religiosity. You're depending on something, and it's not Christ. So what Paul's going to give in this list, even though the details won't apply to you, you're not a Benjaminite. However, thinking of it as confidence in the flesh, every point applies today to anyone not trusting in Christ for salvation, in Christ only. So let's look at this list. These seven things that were gained to Paul, that he considered a benefit that he held on to in the face of the afterlife that would make him right with God. We can break the seven in half because there's really two things he's going to focus on. Paul in his old life was confident before God because of his pedigree and because of his performance. Let's begin with his pedigree. Verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day. Paul has just said, if others have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And this is one way that he has more. Even if the Philippians, Gentiles, non-Jews, were to submit to the Judaizers and become Jewish by being circumcised and keeping the Mosaic law, even if they were to do that, Paul would still have them beat by his Jewishness. Because when was Paul circumcised? Not as an adult, on the eighth day. When God first made his covenant with Abraham, the progenitor of all the Jewish people, that first father of the Jews, Father Abraham, when God made the covenant with Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, he gave him circumcision as a sign of his faith, as a sign of the covenant, and he told Abraham, even then in Genesis, you do it on the eighth day. Abraham did it when he was 80, 90 years old, Ishmael when he was 13, but from then on, all children born were to be circumcised on the eighth day. That meant you were a part of the covenant community of God. You were the chosen people of Israel because you were circumcised on the eighth day. In the Mosaic law, it got its stamp of approval and everyone was told, be circumcised on the eighth day. Paul is saying, Philippians... If you listen to the Judaizers and you get circumcised in order to be right with God because you think your Jewishness will do it, I still have you beat. You just became a Jew. I was a Jew from birth. On the eighth day, I was circumcised. Just a little bit of thought and you will see some application of this today because there are some, even here, some of you, and I can't see in your heart, okay? I'm not trying to judge. Look, I'm just... Some of you, when you think about your salvation, when you think about standing before God for 
It is appointed to man to die once and then comes judgment, says the scriptures. And when you think about that, your confidence is at least in part on the fact that growing up, you were at church two, three times a week. Your parents were Christians. Your grandparents were Christians. You were in VBS. You were in Sunday school. You've been in the church since the eighth day of your life. You've been here since a newborn. Not maybe this church, but a church. You've been in a Christian country, in a Christian community, Christian friends, Christian parents, Christian church. So when you die, you think, how could I not be a Christian? <laughs> I mean, it's everywhere. I swim in it. I live in it. All my friends are Christian. Everybody's Christian. I go to Christian school. Paul is saying that was his trust too. Circumcised on the eighth day from the very start, right out the womb, so Jewish. And these were, in the Old Testament, the people of God. He was in the people of God. Not all of them were genuine believers, but he was in that community. Paul says, that was my confidence. That was my gain before God. He goes on to say that he was of the people of Israel, and even more specifically, of the tribe of Benjamin. So again... If a Philippian was to say, these Judaizers are making sense, I should be circumcised and become Jewish so that I can be right with God, then Paul says, even if you become Jewish now, in this way, I still have you beat. Not only was I circumcised before you, but you're not going to be part of a tribe. Because you have to actually be born a Jew to have a tribal lineage of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Paul says, I've got that. You won't even have that if you become Jewish, as the Judaizers want. But I've got that. I mean, think of how Jewish Paul is. His parents named him Saul, who was also, in the Old Testament, the first king of Israel and a Benjaminite. So, most likely he was named right after Saul, the first king of this nation of Israel. So, he's of the people of Israel. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's named after Israel's first king. He's as Jewish as it gets. That's what he's trying to argue here. Generally speaking, Jewish. Specifically speaking, Jewish. Benjaminite. And even here, for some who are here, some who hear this, you may find that your confidence in the face of death is not just generally that you consider yourself Christian because you know many people do and they live however they want, but you're thinking it's not just that you're Christian, but even your group within that bigger group. You're not a Benjaminite, but you might be reformed. You have a high view of the Bible. You're a Protestant. You're not a Catholic. So even within Christianity, you get specific and you're on the right side of things. Paul says that was his confidence too. He was, he continues here, a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning first that he was the exemplar <laughs> He was as Hebrew, which is another name for Jewish. He was as Hebrew as he could get. How are you going to get more Hebrew than Paul? <laughs> You're not going to. But also you might be saying he was a Hebrew born of Hebrew parents from the very beginning. And some of you are right now resting on the faith of your mother, father, your grandfather, your grandmother. You may have people in your family, missionaries, pastors, those who are active in the church, active in the work of Christ. And so you're from that line you know the Bible answers, and here you are at church, so how could you not be a Christian? Paul says, I wasn't. 
And I can even tell you from myself, growing up, a Christian of Christians with parents who were believers right before they got married and then were believers growing up with good teaching, growing up mostly here in this church with good teaching, knowing the Bible, knowing the right Bible answers, being considered a very moral, good Christian kid at a public school. People look at, that's a Christian kid. I had everything going for me. And I didn't know Christ. And what's worst of all is I didn't know that I didn't know Christ. That's what Paul's warning against here. I'm not saying Christian, he's saying Jewish. But in his context, that's what he was holding on to, that he was right with God. A Hebrew of Hebrews, it's his pedigree. He was born into it. Of course, he's a Christian. Here's Paul's pedigree, born into the people of God, and that's what he was trusting in. We don't want to denigrate in any way the immense benefit and beauty of those of you who have grown up in a Christian home, even for myself. It is a wonderful privilege, and we wish everyone had that privilege, so keep sharing the gospel so everyone comes to Christ, and then they raise their children that way. It's a wonderful thing. I still have Bible verses that I know by song that I learned when I was very, very young. (laughs) That's a beautiful thing. You who are raising children in a Christian home don't think, oh no. But we have to be aware that being in a Christian home comes with dangers, comes with temptations, just like everything does in life. But here's a unique temptation. And Paul points it out. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Surely he's of the people of God. The temptation is in an environment that is fully Christian, that someone might assume that just being in that environment automatically means you're Christian. Jesus said, unless you are born a second time, you cannot see the kingdom of God. The temptation is if you're born the first time into a Christian family, it feels like your first birth might be your second birth. (laughs) And you assume, of course, I'm born again. My parents are born again Christians. I'm a born again Christian. But you've never been born again. Doesn't count. That is what Paul's warning against. Holding on to your pedigree, being in an environment that's Christian and holding on to that as, of course, I will be right with God when I enter the afterlife. Paul says, I thought so too. There was his pedigree. That's one part of his hope, formerly. The other part of his gain at that time was his performance. And we move into that now in the text. He says, as he goes on, as to the law the law of Moses, as to the law, a Pharisee. If you don't know what Pharisee is, the New Testament gives you some hints in itself. Paul will later say in the book of Acts that he was raised, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Pharisees were strict. That's the one thing you need to know about them to understand this text. Very strict zealous, Jewish, religious persons. Most people in Jesus' day were not Pharisees. Most Jews were not Pharisees. They were a smaller party in some sense here. Leaders were the Pharisees and people looked up to them. But those Pharisaic leaders, they were considered the cream of the crop because they did so much externally at least to be strict and rigorous 
in fearing and following Yahweh. That was their view of it. In another place, Paul says that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, which Gamaliel was part of the supreme court of the Jewish people. And he was a Pharisee and well-respected. So Paul is not just a minor figure. He's studying under Gamaliel as a Pharisee. And he says, according, he's educated there according to the strict manner of the law of our father. So there you have it. Paul is saying, as to the law of Pharisee, and the people then would hear that as, as to the law, incredibly strict. So Paul is not some nominal religious person who shows up at church on Easter and Christmas, goes to Mass every once in a while perhaps, or maybe picks up a Bible here and there, but most Sundays are about Sunday football, you know? That's not what Paul was. As a Jew, Paul was earnest. His entire life was zealously devoted to the law, to keeping it. The Pharisees, Jesus said, tithe, mint, dill, cumin. In one of Jesus' parables, he portrays a Pharisee saying, thank you, God, that I fast twice a week and I tithe of everything I give, everything I get. Really, if the Pharisees received a command from the law, what they would do is build 10 commands around it just to make sure they don't even get close to breaking it, externally speaking. They were not just strict, they were hyper-strict as a party. Paul says the strictest party of the Jewish people were the Pharisees, and that's what Paul was. So the Judaizers can't say, well, Paul, he never really was serious about the law anyways. That's why he doesn't understand. He was serious about the law. Paul's strictness can be seen in this next mark of his performance. As to zeal, he says, a persecutor of the church. Paul was wrong in his former life, but he was sincerely wrong. Acts 8.3 reports what he says here. Quote, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And you remember that Christ appears to him on his road to Damascus, but why was he going to Damascus? It's not his home. Because, we're told in Acts, Saul, still breathing threats and murder, really good guy, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him so he could go to Damascus and arrest Christians there. I myself was convinced, he later said when he was on trial, that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So Paul, formerly Saul, before Christ met him, he had a zeal for God. Who's going to deny that? But as he would describe it, a zeal without knowledge. But it was a zeal. Sometimes as Christians, you can forget that the person who wrote most of your New Testament would not originally, before he knew Christ, would not be like some neighbor you meet out there. He'd be more comparable to like an Islamic terrorist. He was actively hunting down Christians casting in his vote to have them killed. I was advancing in Judaism, Paul said, beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And here is one of the greatest dangers that Paul's now alluding to, which is here you are, and some of you are not just nominally connected to Christianity. You may be very zealous for God. 
You remember those Jesus said would come to him on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these remarkable things, casting out demons, working miracles in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Those weren't the nominal people who show up twice a year. Those were the zealous for God people. If someone was to talk about them, oh my goodness, they are zealous for God. Paul says that was him. And his zeal as a persecutor of the church, it's not enough to defend his own faith against Christians. He has to wipe them out. He's traveling. He's given his whole life to this endeavor. He's advancing beyond his contemporaries. Among his friend group, he's the Jew. He's the religious one, right? He's known as that. And he didn't know Christ. And he didn't know the true God. Can you be zealous for God and not know Christ? Paul says, yes, you can. This isn't, for those of you who have a very sensitive conscience, this isn't trying to attack your faith in Christ and say, are you sure you're a Christian? But this is in the Bible for you who are zealous for God, grown up perhaps in a Christian environment, incredibly religious in your pedigree and in your performance, faithfully attending church. But do you know Christ? Not know about Christ, you hear? There's no about, there's no about here. Do you know Christ? Paul says, I didn't. His final point summarizes everything, his performance. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul's not saying that you can actually earn a righteousness under the law. Read Romans and you'll know that's not what he's saying. Nor is Paul saying by the word blameless that even according to the Mosaic law, he perfectly did everything impossible. Those are impossible things. That's not what Paul's saying. You kind of have to take a step back from this line. Don't try to read into it too closely here and make it say that. Step back. What is Paul saying? Just like David in the Psalms, save me because of my righteousness. He's not supposing he's never sinned. We read Psalm 51. We know he sinned. But it's Generally speaking, he has no unconfessed sins. He has no major offenses against Yahweh according to the Mosaic law. He's not been out eating pork. He's keeping the dietary restrictions. He's circumcised. He's avoiding those nasty Gentiles, I guess. He's doing everything properly. So he's blameless. If any of the other Pharisees, even the Judaizers, knew Paul at that point, they could testify, wow, that's a, not just a Jewish man, that's a blameless Jewish man. He's a good, zealous, faithful Jew. As Martin Luther would say in a different context long after, but with the same spirit, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. <laughs> if ever a Jew got to heaven by his Jewishness, it was Paul. Here he brings up really the very heart of the whole matter. Why give this list of seven items? Because what Paul's interested in and what we're talking about this morning is what he says right there, righteousness. You probably don't walk around using that term a lot. <laughs> we did a while ago. We called things righteous. That was kind of a hippie thing maybe. I don't know. But we don't use righteousness as a term that often in conversation. What is that? He's saying a right standing before God. Isn't that everything we're talking about? We want a right standing before God. And he says he sought it in the law, a righteousness from the law. He's holding on to it. He's blameless. Here he goes into eternity with a right standing standing before God. Paul was 
correct to, to think that he needed righteousness, but he was very wrong in how he went about getting it. And everyone who relies on religion or their own goodness to get to heaven is in exactly the same boat. You know you need a right standing before God. That's why sometimes when you're tempted to do something you know you shouldn't, you don't do it. Say, ah, I can't get that bad. I'm not going to go with that crowd because then I kind of lose my Christian credentials or then God's going to judge me for that, so I'll stop right there. You know you need righteousness and you're trying so hard to get it, not through a Mosaic law, but through some general standard of what's good and bad. It's the wrong place to get righteousness. Pedigree, performance, that's what he considered gain. But now we have to move in the text because Paul says, I threw that all away. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. So now we move from what he considered gain to his considering it loss for the sake of Christ. Here, verse 7, but whatever and whatever, not just what he listed, but if there is anything else that he missed, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It's a little unfortunate that in English the word loss and lost t with a T sounds so similar that you've probably heard this verse as lost. <laughs> Whatever gain I had, I counted as lost. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. He's going to talk next week about losing lots of things, but what he says is, I counted it as loss. S, S, L, O, S, S. I counted my former confidence in the flesh as loss. Meaning, before it was gain, it was on the side of the ledger that says benefits, pros, good things, hope into the future. And he says, when Christ met me, what I did is I realized, I counted, I realized in my brain everything I was trusting in. It's not just not going to work but it's actually a liability to me because I'm trusting in it. His Jewishness, which there's nothing wrong with Jewishness. It's wonderful. We love the Jewish people. But the fact that he had a confidence in his external Judaism, that which he was trusting in actually is the very weight that if he had died with that would have dragged him down the mountain into hell. He counted it as loss. He didn't stop being Jewish. Paul goes on being very proud to be Jewish. Not proud in a bad sense, but in a good sense. He was very glad to be Jewish. He was entrusted with the oracles of God. There were many benefits to, doing the Jewish, to being the Jewish people. And even today, at least here, we consider there's a future for ethnic Israel who will turn to God in the end. So it's very good to be Jewish. Paul didn't stop being Jewish. In fact, his pedigree didn't change at all, even though his performance did. So really what he's counting as a loss or a liability is not even his Jewishness. It's his confidence in his Jewishness as he goes into the afterlife. It's a confidence in the flesh, he says, meaning his Jewishness for him was all external. It was in the outer man, not a circumcision of the heart, but of the flesh. Paul could do, be, and do all of these things good Jewish things while yet breathing murder against God's children. And he didn't see that as inconsistent at all. And that happens. Because Paul was, as Jesus would say of the Pharisees, like a whitewashed tomb. 
It's a tomb, and inside are unclean dead men's bones. You don't want to go in there. It stinks. It's bad. As a Jew, you'd be unclean. But you roll a big rock in front of it, and then you cover it up with whitewash, and it glistens against, the sun glistens against it. It looks nice. And Jesus said, that's what the Pharisees were, and that's what Paul was, and that's what all who trust in their religion are. Externally, you'll look so nice. You don't look like a drug dealer down on the corner. You're coming to church. You're doing the right things. You're treating people pretty decently well most of the time. Externally, you look good. But the problem is, beyond the externals, at the level of the heart, it's just managed corruptions. You've just moved the nasty corruption into certain places where it's the least visible to others, and you deal with it that way. And Jesus says, if you don't let me in to deal with that the right way and kill it off, you can't trust in that going into eternity. That's what was loss. Paul was ready to make the climb as a Jew. He was ready for the afterlife, but he wasn't. And I pray that for any here who feel that way, ready for the afterlife, because externally, you're blameless. I pray that God would show you. Externally, it doesn't matter. Do you know Christ? Internally and of the heart. How could God not accept someone so religious that they've been to church every week of their lives? So Committed that they've missed hardly a single mass over decades of life. How could God possibly reject someone who's so zealous that they are not only Christian, but they try to make other people Christian too? If that's in your mind, referring to yourself, please forsake that hope right now. Forsake it. Take that list of seven that Paul has, whatever your list may be, that you're hoping as you face death, that's going to help you. Burn it. Burn it now. Get rid of that list. That's what Paul's saying. It was gain to me. I count it not just lost. I count it loss. Burn that list up. I don't trust that anymore. None of my religiosity. None of my goodness. None of my church attendance. None of my zeal. None of that. There have been men who come and preach from the pulpit zealously and energetically and don't know Christ. This is what Paul's warning against. Don't trust in those things. Those are all external. Those are easy. You see them, you go, oh, of course. They can be whitewashed. That's what Paul's saying. But he counted all of it as loss. He gave all that he was trusting away. Some of you know of the name Nabil Qureshi. This was a man not that long ago, a Pakistani Grew up here in the U.S., went to college at least here in the U.S., and he had a friend who was a Christian trying to convince him as a devout Muslim, Nabil was, his friend was trying to convince him of Christianity, and they had a good friendship. And Nabil spent his whole college career working adamantly to disprove the Christianity of his friend, failed, and instead became not only a Christian, but a Christian apologist. That was Nabil Qureshi. Now, as Nabil was considering the claims of Christianity, trying to disprove the Bible, but then he looks at the original documents that we have and realizes, I don't have a good case against it. Tries to disprove the Trinity, but when he thinks about it, realizes actually that's very possible. Tries really hard to disprove every point of Christianity, the death of Christ with the swoon theory, common among Muslims, realizes that's not going to work. 
tries to disprove the resurrection of Christ. Well, it seems Christ resurrected. How else do you deal with the early church? As one thing after another falls, what he, Nabil was still holding on to was he realized if he counts all of his Islamic goodness, and he was devout, if he counts it all as loss, his parents were Muslims and worked hard to propagate Islam, if he counts that as loss and no longer holds on to the Islam that he trusted would win him favor with Allah, there would be an immense cost. We'll see that next week. But also, it's a scary thing. Because what are you left with? Nothing but Christ. Nabil Qureshi, eventually, it's not easy for any of us, eventually took that leap, grabbed onto Christ, counted everything else as lost, all his good Islamic behavior, counted everything as lost, took hold of Christ. And in 2017, just a few years ago, he was about five years older than I am, as a Christian apologist, he developed stomach cancer. You may know that he passed away from that at the age of 34. But think of Nabil, who counted everything he held as gain, as loss, all his religiosity as a Muslim, and grabbed onto Christ. And I promise you, when he was hanging from that cliff face of eternity, he was glad that his rope was Christ. Now, you have to ask the same question of yourself when you hang from that cliff face, which will happen. What is your rope? What are your clips? What is your harness? Is it Christ? Do you still count your goodness to be gain or do you count it as loss for every single one of you? If someone asks you why you should get to heaven, does your mind first go to the good that you've done outweighing the bad? or your Christian performance, or your faithful church attendance, or anything like that. Let me ask you this. The thief who died on the cross next to Jesus, who was welcomed that very day into paradise, what was his performance? What did he have to hold on to? Was he a good Muslim? Was he a good Christian? Was he a good anything? By his own admission, he was a criminal, and that's why he was dying. But he looks over a bloodied shoulder, sees Jesus, literally has nothing else, not even his clothes, and by faith grabs on to Christ. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's the same thing Jesus says to you. Scripture says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. If you have no money, come buy and eat. Jesus adds his testimony. Come to me if you're labor and you're heavy laden, you're working hard to get to God, to be right with him, and you just keep failing. Come to me, Jesus says, and I, I, Jesus himself, will give you rest. For as scripture says, if you trade your old equipment, you take hold of Christ, then when it comes to the afterlife, quote, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Jesus, like we sang, so may it be in our hearts for every one of us. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. I don't have another argument. I don't have another plea. All I know is that, Jesus, you died and you died for me. When I face an afterlife and my brothers and sisters and friends who are here do the same, Lord, I pray this would be our one plea, our one argument in the face of judgment, 
deserving as we are of eternal judgment because of our sins, I pray that you would help us to cling to this one thing, Christ. To know this one thing, Christ and Him crucified. All the philosophies of the world, all the science, everything else we've interested ourselves in in this world, all the heights of human knowledge, everything will do nothing to help us. Religious performance, mysticisms and meditations mean and do nothing. It is us in the face of eternity having either Christ, you, or having nothing. If we have nothing, we will fall forever. If we have you, you will hold. You will hold us. I beg this, Lord, for those who are here, for your people, that this would be a comfort to them. For those who have been assaulted by doubts of the devil, who tries to dissuade them away from Christ, to looking at themselves, the work of their hands, their own efforts, whether they're good enough. I pray you'd help them now to fix their eyes on you, author and perfecter of their faith. I pray for those who are here, who do not know Christ, and I beg you, Lord, my heart's desire for them is for their salvation. I could wish that I myself were a curse, cut off from Christ for their sake. I pray, Lord, that you would please convince them as no person can, as I certainly cannot, beyond all their defensive barriers, that you would break through and show them that their, their religion and their goodness has all been whitewashed and at the person of the heart, there's no new principle that beats with affection for you. There's no real life there. But your spirit can breathe on a valley of dead bones and make them live. I pray you would do that, that they would forsake all other hope and trust, dive into the ocean of your goodness and hold fast that one raft we have, which is Christ and that they would be saved forever and in 10,000 upon 10,000 years would remember today as the day when they put off the old man and all of its confidence in the flesh and put on Christ and Christ only. For your glory we pray these things.